I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It may be difficult to remember sometimes, but since the COVID-19 pandemic hit us three years ago, more than one million people have lost their lives due to COVID, and more than six million have been hospitalized. And while the CDC has ended the public health emergency, tens of thousands of Americans are living with long COVID. And for them, the pandemic continues even as many of us have moved on. Scientists and researchers are still attempting to learn what long COVID is and how to treat the condition that is continuing to disrupt people's lives. Later this hour, we'll talk with people living with long COVID and some people trying to help them. But first, it's time for Add Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past few weeks is our executive producer, Andrea Tudhope. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Khalil. It's been a busy couple of weeks for us. It really, really has, huh? You know, okay, so let's start perhaps with the biggest reason for that. Our mayoral forum. Yes, we teamed up. I'm sure some some loyal listeners have heard us say this a million times now. Yes. But <laughs> we have teamed up with the Nashville Child and Youth Collaborative and put on a forum last Monday night, which was amazing. Uh, truly, like such an energized crowd, and it was standing room only. Um, it was really, really great. You know, with the colors and the crowd and so many young people there, I felt like we were at a, a school assembly for a debate <laughs> on student council more so than a mayoral forum. Yeah, it did have those vibes for sure. Um, and I've always felt like a really good indicator of an event's success is the lingering afterwards. Mm. And um, after the event, that lobby was full for a while. Yep. So that was cool. Um, now, behind the scenes, uh, our producer, Elizabeth Burton, was helping out that night, and I gave her kind of a fun assignment. Hmm. Um, I was like, tweet about the forum without tweeting about the forum. Okay, that's confusing. <laughs> well, listen, I didn't want to give away the content itself, knowing that we'd be producing a few special episodes so our listeners could hear the full forum later in the week. Okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, Elizabeth understood the assignment um, our favorite tweeter, Nicole Williams, a.k.a. Startles Easily, tweeted, y'all, Amy Dunn's intern is doing incredible work in this thread. I've laughed out loud twice during the reading of this thread. Okay, uh, point of clarity. Elizabeth Burton handle, handle is Amy Dunn's intern, but in fact, she's one of This Is Nashville's producers. Yes, yes. Important clarification. Um, so some highlights from Elizabeth's tweets that night. Uh, she tweeted, one of the most spectacular parts about this is the candidate's ability to remember a question that was asked five minutes ago. I don't even remember what I said at the beginning of this tweet, um, <laughs> which I love. And also, yeah, they were really remembering exactly what we asked them. Yes. It's like they've done a million forums or something. <laughs> um, and then she also tweeted uh, about dogs running for mayor, Girl Scout cookies, and socks, of all things. There was an intense Girl Scout cookie debate. I still I still want to state frozen Thin Mints is the way to go. Yeah, well, you're going to have to. We, we can debate about this mm -hmm. off air. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth was asking the tough questions of the candidates that night. Quote, are your fun socks youth panel specific that people need to know? 
<laughs> and candidate Matt Wilshire replied that he got his socks at Parnassus, adding that they're in regular rotation with his WPLN Transit socks. Yes, I know those well. And candidate Freddie O'Connell showed off his unicorn socks that were, that he said were a gift from his family. <laughs> Great engagement from the candidates on from this thread. Also, you know, our forum had sparked a heated debate on Girl Scout cookies, like I mentioned. If you don't really know why, then you better go back and catch episode two of our special mayoral coverage. Yes, you can find those episodes at WPLN.org slash election. Um, so on the whole, uh, that all three episodes we did last week and the forum sparked a lot of discussion on social media, which was also thanks in part to senior producer Steve Harouche live tweeting um, during the actual episodes uh, where we aired what the candidates said. Um, Meredith Dunn tweeted, thank you after the event. Full disclosure, she works for Jim Gingrich's campaign. But she tweeted to share that as a native Tennessean, she's been a huge fan of our show since we launched. Uh, she wrote, quote, it's truly some of the most engaging and nuanced reporting being done right now. Thanks for always providing a platform for such rich local stories to be heard. Oh, thank you so much, Meredith, for that. We really appreciate it. And uh, no, Jim Gingrich is not going to get any extra time on our air. <laughs> Um, so we heard from a lot of folks that this forum was different. And I love to hear that because... Uh, that was the goal. Last thing last thing we needed was more of the same. Um, how many forums have there even been so far? Really? A hundred? Your guess is as good as mine. I think Jeff Yarborough said 640. <laughs> but yeah, the vibes from our forum were very, very different. We gave teens the mic to ask their questions of the candidates and interview folks on the way out. Tom Cash, who's running for council, tweeted that it was his favorite forum so far. Uh, now, candidate and current state senator Heidi Campbell got a lot of pushback for her comment that Nashville needs a mom. But Tennessee Lookout uh, editor Holly McCall pointed out that this harkens back to Mayor John Cooper's staff successfully branding him as Nashville's dad during his run in 2019. Mm. All right. There was another buzzworthy episode last week about Airbnbs and other short term rentals in Nashville. Yeah, so we were short-staffed that day, so we didn't have anyone live tweeting for that show, but turns out we kind of didn't need it. <laughs> Our listeners really got into this episode, especially one listener whose handle and Twitter name might be seen as a little edgy for some of our listeners, so I'm only going to say it once. At Bastard Bukowski had a lot to share, uh, but here's one of his tweets. Quote, I live in a neighborhood surrounded by STRPs, um, that's short-term rental properties, Constant noise, overflowing trash cans, cars parked everywhere. Now there are whole apartment buildings being built, advertised, sold as STRPs, inflating property values and pricing out locals. Um, and he went on to say that laws and codes and complaints were being ignored by Metro. Hmm. So he recommended that permits no longer be issued, that the laws be enforced, and that we treat these short-term rentals as businesses um, also, he shared a map that shows the density of rentals in East Nashville alone. And just so our listeners can imagine, it's a white map with faint orange dots on every property. East Nashville is basically orange. Mm. So In Interesting. <laughs> now, Parker Millsap tweeted at us that day asking, quote, I would love to know the estimated number of houseless Nashvillians versus the number of full-time Airbnbs, end quote. Yes. So our guest producer for that episode, Tony Gonzalez, was locked and loaded with the answer. Uh, he wrote that a recent estimate of our unhoused population is 2,000, um, and there are nearly 7,000 permitted short-term rentals. Hmm. But 
uh, our listener at Kelly Kitty added that 2000 uh, for our unhoused population is not necessarily accurate, um, that some local homeless advocacy and service organizations estimate closer to 20,000 people um, living on the streets, living in motels, living in cars. Mm-hmm. That's a serious number that we have to address. Yeah. So sure. needless to say, yeah, our listeners have made it clear that we should do another episode on this. And it has been a while since we dived into affordable housing. So um, I think we could we could certainly do that soon. Yeah. Yeah. It would be really valuable, especially since Nashville's tourism industry doesn't seem to be waning at all. Anything else on that, Andrea? Well, I uh, I wanted to share um, some of a DM that we got on Twitter from Jim. Um he actually had some pushback he wanted to share on how we o- covered the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So let me read some of his message. Quote, I appreciate the excellence you're pursuing with your show. The talent and production value is high and it's compelling. If you're willing to read it, though, I'd like to offer a perspective on the editorial. I intend it with kindness and wish you the best. I've lived here 28 years and in recent years, I believe there's been a clear shift I feel as though I'm not welcome at WPLN any longer. WPLN News is often not telling both sides of a story. On the Roe v. Wade show, every perspective was pro-choice. If the nation is divided, there are two sides, but the pro-life side was not addressed, end quote. And I just want to be clear that pro-choice, pro-life language was his. Um, So first of all, let me say I really appreciate Jim for sharing this feedback so thoughtfully and kindly. That is like just means a lot. You know, we want to talk about our differences here. So I just I thought that was really kind. And I will say for these episodes, our focus has been on people most impacted. And that would be in this scenario, people seeking or who could be in need of abortions. Um, And data from Pew Research shows that roughly 60 percent of people in this country believe abortion should be legal. So we've booked all of our shows with that in mind, really. That being said, like I said, we're totally up for discussions across differences on air. And I think in our continued coverage of this, because we're going to keep covering it, mm-hmm. right? I can see inviting a panel of folks who fall down on different sides of that debate. Um, and one thing I'll say, one last thing I'll say for Jim and other listeners who may share those beliefs On the back end, we track our source diversity, um, which includes political identity. And though you can't always hear it overtly, we have a wide range of political perspectives on our show. Yep. And at the end of the day, we're all humans. Okay. One last thing. A heads up for our listeners. We'll be off air next week. Yes. We've got two new producers on board. Elizabeth Burton, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, And now Char Dastin, who comes to us from WBEZ in Chicago. And we're so excited to have both of them. Yes. So because we have a growing team, we thought we need to take a week off to do some team building. And most importantly, as always, to do some community engagement with all of our listeners. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, next week you'll hear Here and Now in Our Place. But don't worry, we'll be back with fresh content July 17th. Very cool. That is our executive producer, Andrea Tudhope. Thank you. For this roundup, Andrea. Yeah, no problem. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, I wonder if they can add us on, what is that new new thing, threads? That'll be really cool. Yeah, we got we to gotta work on that. <laughs> okay, okay. Potentially threads. So add us on Twitter and Instagram, and let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It is super easy and quick, and it helps us produce the shows with your needs and your interests in mind. 
we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the current state of long COVID as the medical community continues to seek to understand more about this condition. Do you have long COVID? Do you know someone who does? You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Long COVID is a medical mystery. Doctors and scientists have yet to understand what exactly it is that makes treatment just as tricky. But for the people who are living with long COVID, there's no mystery about how they're feeling. The symptoms of long COVID vary from person to person and can manifest in many ways. One common thread for people with long COVID is that their lives have been disrupted and they just want to find relief. So what is the current state of long COVID? What is it like to live with the mysterious condition? My next guest is here to share his experience. Frank Ziegler was diagnosed with long COVID in April of 2021. Frank, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Let me let me ask you, how are you feeling today? I feel, I feel fine. Um, I think that part of it is, as you said, it varies amongst the, the individuals. I know people that are a lot worse off than I am. Um, I've learned now at this point to, for an example, I have shortness of breath, is to manage that, which has certainly changed my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's a big part of it is as you go on, it's been you know, in the beginning January of 2021, when I got COVID, nobody really knew about long COVID. It was, you became a long hauler, but what exactly did that mean? And um, it's much better understood now than it was. Well, tell me about what it was like when you were first diagnosed with COVID back in January 2021. My first reaction was I was mad. Hmm. I had managed to dodge it four or five different times. And when he told me I tested positive, I didn't believe him. So I went to the uh, local health department and got tested there because I had a rapid test. And then I got the PCR test and it, of course, came back positive. I I lost my smell. But my situation was what a lot of people refer to as a mild case, quote unquote. I thought I had a sinus infection, which I've had for years. Mm-hmm. Um, except for losing smell, I wouldn't have thought that I had COVID. For me, um, things started changing a couple of months later. I started noticing um, differences and had no idea what was happening um, because there wasn't really any literature at that point. What were some of the differences you noticed a few months after? I noticed I began to lose weight when I wasn't trying to. Um, I developed hand tremors, shortness of breath, which I had fatigue, but I mistook the fatigue. Uh, I mistook shortness of breath really as being fatigue, mm-hmm. even though I had fatigue. Uh, and then cognitive issues of short-term memory lapses, um, processing speeds, executive functioning, which are all pretty common in those in people with long COVID. So what did your doctor say when you told him about how you were feeling and these symptoms that you just gave to me? My primary care doctor, I sent a very long message to. Um, I certainly have never been a hypochondriac and would typically only see him once a year for physicals or for sinus infections. 
And I sent him a message and said, something's wrong. I don't know what it is. Um, should I, could we have a televisit? Should I come in? Um, are you seeing this in any of your other patients? And he wrote back and said that um, we could have a televisit if I wanted to. But he was seeing this in some of his other patients, which I deemed to be totally unacceptable. Um, I wasn't sure where to turn. I called the CDC to find out if I was the only one. And that's a very popular question. Uh, they wanted to talk about the vaccine because the vaccine was really being rolled out during that period, but I hadn't gotten the vaccine, uh, which is also kind of a misnomer. There's a lot of people that think that long COVID came from the vaccine, and I had long COVID before I got the vaccine. But I Googled infectious disease department at Vanderbilt and wound up um, with a wonderful doctor at Vanderbilt, Dr. Eve Bowers, who then started me on the path of talking to specialists. I know coming up later in this uh, program, you're going to have Dr. Jim Jackson on. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Jackson runs a support group at Vanderbilt that has uh, started with four people, of which I was one. And then um, it's now two different groups of over 25 people each with a waiting list of another 50 people. Mm -hmm. now, now, take me back to when you having that correspondence with your doctor about having a televisit. Yes. And your doctor, it feels to me like your doctor kind of pushed it aside or played it off. Like, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. My other patients are experiencing the same symptoms. How did you feel when he told you that? Um, I was really upset. I was mad. Because again, I didn't, it's almost like I'd had a track record of going to him all the time with every little problem, which wasn't the case. I never knew what the term gaslighting was um, until I got into this, but that's clearly what happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's quite often, you know, it's psychological, it's anxiety, it's depression, it's whatever, or, you know, yeah, I'm seeing this with other people. Um, the only thing I say is at that point, he didn't, he didn't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he's... I mean, he's a good doctor, but I don't think that it was handled well with me. All right. Now I'd like to introduce my next guest. Andrea Roberts is a senior research scientist at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. Andrea, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so but before we get your response to what Frank just shared with us, I really want to learn more about your research. I understand you, you focus on trauma and child abuse and the way that that leads to health problems in adulthood. Can you give us a brief example of that? Sure. Um, because it's relevant to what we're going to be discussing next, um, an example, it's not uh, really about child abuse, but in terms of uh, PTSD, which often follows child abuse, uh, we've found that women with PTSD are two times more likely to develop ovarian cancer than women who don't have PTSD. Mm. So, so how, do you, how do you apply that knowledge of researching the effects of that to long COVID? Well, I use that example because it's so sort of medical and kind of undeniable. Like you have ovarian cancer, you can do a, you know, biopsy, you see the cells, they're cancer. There's no question that it exists. And and in our research, we found some similar relationships with long COVID that um prior to being exposed to covid if you have if you have depression or anxiety you're at higher risk of developing long covid and um that is not to say as um your guest mentioned that it's quote only anxiety or depression just as ovarian cancer is not quote only ptsd 
Mm. So, okay, so what's your response to doctors telling Frank and others that what they're going through is all in their heads? Well, that's a particularly aggravating response. <laughs> mm. um, I guess, I, I think, unfortunately, perhaps our doctors are not trained well enough to just acknowledge that they don't understand what's happening. And I think it's a fallback, maybe a you know defense mechanism to make them feel better about their ignorance. Ignorance makes all of us uncomfortable. But to simply tell your patient, you know, I'm really sorry, but I don't know what's going on with you. And I will try to help you find a specialist who might be more insightful rather than saying it's all in your head, which is, you know, as someone who does psychiatric illnesses is particularly aggravating because things that are all in your head are also highly meaningful and also biological. Mm. And, you know, our head, our head encompasses our brain, which is, you know, made of cells and does a lot of important stuff in our body. Now, you study the difference between psychological and psychosomatic conditions. Can you break down what that really means? Well, that's another tricky term because, um, well, when we were when we were going to publish our research about um, pre-existing um, loneliness and stress and um, anxiety and depression and risk of long COVID for people who were later infected with COVID. And we found that there were high, there was higher risk. Those things were uh, risk factors. Um, we, we said in the paper, you know, this is not psychosomatic. And what we meant by that is it's not something that people are sort of willing. It's not like, oh, if you decide you don't have it, then you won't have it, which can I just say is not the truth of mm. depression either. But like, I think... So there's a couple levels of confusion. One, um, just because depression or other psychological factors are a risk factor for a disease does not mean that the way to treat the disease is by treating depression or anxiety, as in my example with ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. You still want your chemo. And treating the depression is not going to make the ovarian cancer go away even if depression increases your risk of it. So that's the first thing. Like just because something causes something else doesn't mean it's also a treatment for it. And then the other thing is, you know, depression is not something people can will away. And similarly with loneliness and anxiety, if it were that easier, then no one would have those things. I mean, depression is biological. Um, and, um, you know, we have medications that uh, sometimes are, are effective for depression. Um, so like, that's sort of, in my view, the second point that just, even if something is psychological does not mean that we can will it away. And if we were just quote tougher, then it would go away. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do, how do, how do those misunderstandings that you just pointed out coupled with the doctors, as you pointed out earlier, inability or apprehension to will, admit, admit that they may not know what is happening to a patient. How does that impact the treatment that patients receive? Well, I think as your guest mentioned, there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on. Um, you know, disproportionately it happens to women, but obviously to men also. And in, in these situations where you have a new disease um, or a disease in which the biology has not been well identified, like chronic fatigue syndrome, um, then, you know, doctors, they can't run a diagnostic test and they don't know how to treat you. So, um, yeah, and, and the gaslighting makes it worse for the patients, whereas some honesty uh, would at least they know, okay, this person can't help me, I'm going to move on. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about long COVID. Are you living with long COVID? What's your experience been like? You can tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest has been working exclusively with long COVID patients. Uh, Dr. Jim Jackson runs the Long COVID Clinic at Vanderbilt and is the author of the book, Clearing the Fog, From Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, A Practical Guide. He was also a guest on our first issue uh, episode about the condition back in January. Dr. Jackson, thanks for coming back to the show. It's really great to be with you today. Thank you. So you coordinate and run these support groups for Tennesseans who have long COVID. How often do you hear stories like the one Frank just shared with us? You know, we hear stories like the one Frank shared uh, literally every week, multiple times a week. And stories that are even much more harrowing than the one that Frank related. We hear stories that are minimizing and upsetting that are concerning all the time. We hear stories certainly of affirmation and hope. We hear those too, but far too often we hear stories of people being dismissed. And really since the May 11th declaration that COVID was effectively over, uh, we hear stories of patients who feel like they're left alone and abandoned. And those are particularly hard to hear um, because being abandoned is the last thing that our patients need. So what's changed since the state of emergency was dropped? Well, I, I think there are some practicalities perhaps that have changed eligibility for, for treatment, details related to um, telehealth and, and things of that sort. But I think the, the primary difference is symbolic and it's powerfully symbolic. I think prior to that declaration, people felt like COVID was on the radar, if you will, of many people who, who count. That is policymakers and journalists and things of that sort. It was on their radar. Mm -hmm. I commend you for uh, this segment. It's so important. But I think what's changed is that long COVID as a public health concern has dropped off the radar of many, many people. When in fact, I, I think if you talk to our long COVID patients, they would say, um, they've never needed advocates more than now. So that's what's changed. Is it more difficult for people to receive treatment now that the state of emergency is gone? In, in some regards, yes. There are some practicalities that have changed. There are some government payments that have changed. But I think the, the bigger thing is that many practitioners now are acting like even thoughtful ones acting like long COVID is over. And I think patients feel like if they had to knock on the door politely before to be heard, now they've got to find a way to kick the door down. Mm. And that's a really difficult thing for our patients to do, um, being physically debilitated and cognitively impaired often. So I think the answer to your question, the short answer is yes. I think people find getting treatment harder I think people find that their providers don't share the same urgency that they did in the early days of long COVID. And um, in my way of thinking, that that's really a tragedy. You recently published a book, Clearing the Fog from Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, a Practical Guide. Tell us, why did you decide to write this? Uh, you know, um, 
long story and I'll, and I'll make it short. Um, back in 2018, I developed a, a chronic illness myself, a chronic mental illness. I developed OCD quite out of the blue and um, I wanted it to go away. And my psychologist said, uh, you know, I'm not so sure it's going away. We're going to try to treat it, but um, we're going to help you find a way to cope with it. And, and I was able, I, you know, thank God I was able to do that. And um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I felt like if I could learn, if I could learn to live with a hard thing that I didn't want, OCD, I could share my story to help long COVID patients cope with something, long COVID, that they didn't want. So that was one of the motivations for the book. But I think the, the biggest one was that there were a lot of people interacting with me and my colleagues on email, social media, in person, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of encounters that we had, maybe more than that, where people felt like they, they didn't have any direction. They didn't have a sense of how they could go about pursuing treatment. Um, they certainly were lacking in hope. And uh, I wanted to create a very practical guide that could help move someone through, through the stages of, of being diagnosed with long COVID, to finding treatment with long COVID, to advocating for yourself with long COVID, to hopefully learning to thrive with long COVID. Um, that was really the desire of the book. And, and recently I read an Amazon review uh, where someone said the book was like a hug. Um, and, and I was so happy about that because uh, that's what it is, intend it is intended to be. It's intended to be a hopeful effort to affirm people with long COVID to provide them some direction. That's the desire. Now, Frank, you were speaking earlier about, you know, how much Dr. Jackson's support groups really helped you out. You ever, you ever a chance to read the book yet? Yes. Yes. What, what do you I think? Have. Did it feel like a hug for you? Well, I'm, I'm kind of used to Dr. Jackson by now after two years. Okay. So, um, yes, it, um, I think that the book, for the people that don't have the advantage, and for the people that do, for all of us, and we talk about this, but for the people that don't have the advantage of being in one of Dr. Jackson's support groups, what they read in Dr. Jackson's book is new. They have not heard this anywhere else. And I think that it's created a whole new support group um, through through Twitter and, and other Internet uh, drivers that would never have been able to hear his message and what he's done. What people need to understand is his book is written based on his actual experiences of leading this group for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. He didn't read any of this stuff in a book. Okay. He's, he's created the book. He's created the blueprint. And I think that that to me is what the most important part is, is, is the effect that that book um, will have on others who, again, do not have the privilege and have not heard anything that he has to say, especially when you're being told it's all in your mind. Mm -hmm. Now, Angela, how do you think we should move forward in studying long COVID? Well, I think what we need is <laughs> something that I don't do, which is, you know, really good biological studies of the processes that are happening in patients with long COVID so that we can, um, you know, medicate whatever those processes or treat in some other way through, um, you know, physical therapy or whatever. Uh, but I think, so part of that is becoming understood, um, you know, inflammatory processes and stuff like that. But um, I also want to mention, I, I think there are 
all sorts of post-virus syndromes that we haven't really appreciated. And my hope is that with some intense research on long COVID, we might also start to understand some other um, syndromes that emerge after viral infections. Frank, what, we'll finish with you. What do you want people to know about what you have experienced? I think that the most important thing for people to know is that long COVID is real. It, it's not just psychological. I actually believe that there's probably a lot more people that have long COVID that just don't realize it because they haven't understood what those say, you know, why do you have that lingering cough after this time? Why do you, why are you still short of breath? Why do you have fatigue? And it gets explained away so easily where programs like this hopefully will will spread the word that, look, you know, you need to get to a doctor. Hopefully that doctor will refer you to a specialist. And then you have a chance where now you have, you just don't understand what's happening with your, with your body. I want to thank my guests, Frank Ziegler from Hendersonville and Angela Roberts from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Really, thanks to both of you for being with us today. And, Frank, the best of luck to you, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Dr. Jim Jackson will stay with us through the break. When we come back, we'll explore treatment options for people living with long COVID as scientists continue searching to learn more about the condition. Have you been seeking treatment for long COVID? We want to hear from you. So just go ahead and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Long COVID is a difficult condition to diagnose and even more difficult to live with. As we heard before the break, the symptoms can vary and manifest themselves differently in different people. And we also heard how COVID long haulers are not always believed by their own doctors and families. But that's not supposed, that's not stopped people from seeking treatment. My next guests have been searching high and low to find some relief from long COVID. Kathy Kelly lives in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and is a participant in Vanderbilt's Long COVID Clinic. And Lisa Hammett is a long COVID, is a COVID long hauler from Bellevue. Kathy, Lisa, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. Really appreciate having you Thank both you. having really appreciate having you both here. You know, I want to know how you both are feeling today. Kathy, how are you doing at the moment? Today is a good day. Today is a good day. Props to Ice Cube, but I'm glad to hear that from you. <laughs> Lisa, how are you feeling? Um, I'm actually recovered from my long COVID, but COVID is still in my system. Um, and I have three minor symptoms. I'm a little tired today. I was tired a little yesterday, but um, overall, I'm doing well. Okay, that's good to hear and appreciate you then again for making it into the studio to be with us. You know, now, Kathy, you know, I understand you were on the front lines at Vanderbilt Medical Center when the pandemic hit. Did you have a fear that, yes. that did you have a fear then that you would contract the virus? Well, it. Okay, so the reality was that um, once we had the initial meeting and um, they gave us the breakdown of what COVID was, how it worked, the reality was that it was not a factor of when it was going to hit the hospital, like of the, if it was going to hit the hospital, but basically the reality was when. And the way it swept through like a fire, 
in my mind, I knew I would eventually get it. It wasn't like I had a fear or anything, but when it did hit, um, I have to say I went through what some people would call the stages of grieving. Mm. I was in doubt. I had anger. My anger lasted. My bitterness lasted longer than the, uh, <laughs> than the doubt. And so I went through multiple mental stages when I did contract it, but I wasn't afraid of getting it. Um, we prepped, we did, we followed all the instructions that, that were given to us. Um, I have a good team that I worked with. So for me, it was a little bit there. Like I wrote public transportation at the time. I didn't drive on a regular basis. So public transportation was the big thing for me. And so that was like my biggest fear that I would get it at public transportation because we cleaned the hospital, like hands and knees cleaning anything we walked past, we wiped it down. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. You know, you mentioned a little bit about your mental state when you first got symptoms. When did you first notice that you had symptoms of COVID? So I didn't know that they were symptoms of COVID when I got them. Hmm. Um, I didn't know until after that they were symptoms of COVID. Um, I did suffer from vertigo. And um, Thursday, like October the 8th, I think it was Thursday, October the 8th in 2020. I think that was, I know it was a Thursday. Um, I could not get out of the bed. I had problems with breathing and I hadn't slept on my CPAP for a couple of days. I was like, oh, well, I'll use it tomorrow. But that Thursday morning, I had to like do a, a one eye open text to my boss and let him know. I was like, I can't email. I can't even stand up. Had to crawl to the bathroom and I fell on the way to the bathroom, which was next to my bedroom. So um, that was the vertigo. And I was thinking, OK, I got vertigo. It's really bad. I'm going to be OK. Um, went to the doctor. They said, okay, yeah, you got vertigo. It's really bad. We'll take the meclizine. You'll be okay. The symptoms did not subside. They were really bad. And then it got worse. And so by that Tuesday, I started feeling sick. Um, I felt like I had a fever. I felt um, a little overwhelmed. And I called my boss and was like, hey, not feeling good. Going to go to the doctor in the morning. And I had come home from work. I was like, yeah, I'm not feeling good. I'm going to go to the doctor in the morning. If I'm okay, I'm going to come in. Well, the funny part about all of it was um, that Thursday, I hadn't had a fever or anything. And my boss was like, nah, stay home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have to come in till Monday. So when I came in Monday, I was upright. I had taken the medication they told me to take. Tuesday, it, it was, I was done. I was, I was floored. I got home. I had the chills, the shakes, all of that. I went to the appointment. Um, I walked to the uh, urgent care clinic down around the corner and, and that was it. They was like, yep. The doctor walked in. He said, Hey, you got it. I don't even have to test you, but I know you got it. He tested me anyway. He said, yeah, you got it. You guys, you And it was like, you know, I worked there so we could be sarcastic with each other. Cause if I was an, any other patient, he wouldn't have said it that way, Mm -hmm. but it was like, yeah, you got it. Just go home, do this, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And that was it. Now, Lisa, tell me, when did you start experiencing long COVID symptoms? I remember it very vividly. I had worked in my um, small patio garden and it was a hot August day and uh, July or August, it kind of blurs in my memory. And I went in and had to take a nap. I felt like this blanket of cement bricks had descended on me from above. Mm. It was just like this extreme fatigue. 
and the worst headache. I was like, this is the worst sinus infection I've ever had. Now, my daughter, in retrospect, had gotten sick on Tuesday, and she had um, she has um, non-conversational autism and intellectual disabilities. And so she couldn't tell me that, you know, I, I, I feel like I neglected her in some ways, but she just like she took a nap and she slept for hours and she was feverish. You know, this was at the cusp of Delta. Mm-hmm. And so and, you know, after that summer where we played and thought COVID would, was over. And so she's young. She got over it um, quickly. Um, I think she stayed home from work one day. And, and that was it. But it, it had incubated in me. Mm-hmm. And so then I went to my chiropractor on Monday, and she says, you look awful. And I said, well, I have a really bad sinus infection. She goes, Lisa, I've been reading up about this new variant, this Delta variant, and it manifests like a, um, like a sinus infection. And I think you have it. Now, I went to a medical doctor I had both my daughter and I um, tested, but I got acupuncture treatment right then and there. And I have followed a course that I have followed for 30 years because that's what had worked for me and got me out of illness 30 years ago of functional medicine, of acupuncture, homeopathy, naturopathy, supplementation, herbs, um, and um, a, a, a clean, very clean diet. So talk talk to me about that difference of this the non-traditional practitioners and what you the path you decided to take, you know, as opposed to the traditional doctors. What what gave you the confidence to go with that? Because uh, I started uh, long-term broad-spectrum antibiotics for acne when I was 16 and stayed on them for 10 years. This was like by the mid-80s. We and we were beginning to go, uh-oh, that's you shouldn't do that. And my body began to erode. I had a very active young person's lifestyle. I ate lots of sugar. It was the days of the fern bars, you know, lots of bread, lots of fried cheese. Um, I just didn't eat well. I was under a, um, a lot of um, stress. And um, my body just began to break down. I was going from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor until I finally developed Epstein-Barr, Epstein-Barr virus. And that's, that's why I was a candidate for um, long COVID. And I've healed then in Atlanta with medical doctors um, with amino acid, uh, individualized high potency amino acid therapy, um, vitamin intravenous, which I did this time too, intravenous cocktail mixes of vitamins and um, in my uh, system and um, deep pressure, lymphatic massage, and I was well in a year. Mm -hmm. And I was fine pretty much for 30 years. But then I I have learned over and over that my diet, my lifestyle, um, and these supportive mechanisms were what keep me well. So I went to that, and it's it's worked. I had a 10-month uh, this is just my experience. Everybody's different. But I had a 10-month uh, tenure with long COVID. Mm-hmm. So I've been well for about a year, but, I, but there are three sy- symptoms that um, remain mildly in my system. Now, Dr. Jim Jackson from Vanderbilt's Long, Clinic, Cl- long COVID Clinic pardon me, is still with us. Thank you again, Dr. Jackson, for being here. Now, you know, you help people 
to adapt to having long COVID. Have you heard of others taking different paths of treatment like Lisa has? There are a lot of paths to treatment. There are conventional, less conventional, unconventional, and I think people are free to pursue any of those. Um, the only thing that really gives us pause is um, when people um, pursue increasingly experimental options that are very expensive um, and um, in some cases use all of the resources they have in search of miracle cures that likely won't work. Um, I like about Lisa's story that is very empowering. I love that. And um, to the extent that patients take ownership, um, that is they're invested in their health. That's a lovely thing. I think we shouldn't um, underplay the role of, of diet and balance. Uh, I think non-traditional approaches to medicine absolutely play a role. And um, I think although we don't necessarily know what the reasons are, uh, we certainly see some people with long COVID get better. Some don't, uh, unfortunately, and that's the particular challenge, but some do. And um, if people are motivated to um, pursue a lot of different options in the service of their health, then uh, we're, we're glad for that because I think that's a healthy impulse for them. Now, Kathy, you moved away from Nashville as a part of your treatment plan. Is that right? Correct. Um, I lived a very busy life. Um, like I said, I was taking a bus daily to get to work. Um, I would walk every once in a while. I lived in a community where you could walk. Um, so it, 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 the busyness, the noise is what bothered me. How has the move helped your condition? Oh, it's so peaceful. <laughs> so um, along with attending those sessions with Dr. Jackson and the group, um, and then uh how do I put it, recognizing that I need those moments of peace, not just to reflect, but to use the tools that I received in those sessions to uh, implement them. Because if you live in a busy life, you're up at six, you're out the door, you're on the bus, you're off the bus, you're walking, you're taking care of patients, you're talking to your coworkers, and you do it all over again the next day. And then if you have a personal life, you're doing this and doing that, that, that slow down time. So this is kind of a way to make me halt, put into practice the things I learned, the new language that I've learned, um, recognizing what causes the PTSD, recognizing that when I have the brain echoes, did I eat the wrong thing? Did I sleep well? Did I, um, did I exercise that day? Actually making cognitive choices, even though I have cognitive deficiencies and the changes in the language is really basically what I've learned in those sessions is how to talk to myself better. Um, depending on everybody's background is different. So the conversations that we have with ourselves can either break us or make us. Mm -hmm. And so in the sessions, we learned that, you know, would you talk to yourself this way if you were a child? You know, if this was a child standing in front of you, would you say these things this way to that child? And, then, and if even if it has happened to you as a child, you don't do that. So the, I think the tools that I used, along with the environment change, because it's very peaceful here, um, has really helped me to, mm -hmm. to cope with the um, problems when they come up. And they come up repeatedly, 
but not as often as they used to. Now, we got, <clears throat> pardon me, we got a tweet at This Is Nashville from Ingrid Beat. He says, quote, there is a long COVID slash post COVID chat group on covidmeetups.com for mutual support, information exchange and coordination of activision, activism. Welcome. Um, have you been able to find community around COVID, long COVID, Lisa? Um, I had a Facebook group that was a combination of people who had Epstein-Barr virus and had gotten COVID. And so I didn't go too deep into it because there were so many people that had symptoms so much more significant than mine. Um, I just didn't want to go there. Um, I knew what was working with me. There were people that were in denial that in alternatives like I could that I used, not that I discussed it with them much, um, were bogus. Um, but I did have community in my friends. Mm-hmm. I had I was so completely taken care of. It almost brings tears to my eyes. I had friends dropping off um, meals and. Um, you know, whatever I needed, going to the bookstore just for for like two weeks because I was encamped with my daughter with autism. She couldn't go to her father's because, you know, we were both contagious. Mm -hmm. And um, so my community came to me. It wasn't a COVID community. It was my community community. You know, Dr. Jackson, as long COVID continues to affect people, tell us, what are your hopes? Couple things. Um, one, I hope that um, the federal government and that policymakers recognize that they need to put the same effort into fighting long COVID that they did in developing a vaccine. The the rate at which the vaccine was developed was a wonder. It was amazing to behold. Um, my hope is that at some point we'll make the same investment in trying to really understand and treat long COVID. That's number one. Number two, um, my hope for people with long COVID, I think of Kathy when I think of this, I'm so proud of her really. She's a, she's a hero of mine, she's so brave. Um, number two is that I want long COVID patients to realize that they can do really hard things. They can do harder things than they think they can and I want them to realize that that even if their long COVID symptoms don't totally resolve like Lisa's have, I want them to realize that they can live a meaningful life, right? They can live a rich, meaningful life of, of value, a, a life of joy, even if their symptoms don't go away. I think that's the biggest thing that I want to communicate that all of your symptoms don't have to go away mm-hmm. for you to be okay. You can do hard things. I want to le- thank my guests, COVID long haulers, Lisa Hammett from Bellevue and Kathy Kelly from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Thanks to you both and continued luck to both of you. I'm gonna, and our friend, Dr. Jim Jackson of the Long COVID Clinic at Vanderbilt. Thanks to you all for being with us. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton. Our senior producer is Steve Farouche. Our digital lead is Anna Geigel's Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutho. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And you remember, the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. You can find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. 
and be good to each other.